Hello and welcome to the Do You Accept These Cookies episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hello. I'm here with Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg. Hello. And we are going to basically talk about whether cookies are delicious or dangerous or both. And specifically, not just about baked cookies, but about the ones that apps and computers put on your phone and follow you around the web. Um, we're going to talk about ad tracking and all such things. We are also going to talk about tuna bonds, because who doesn't want to know about tuna bonds? And we are going to talk about Zillow, iBuying, and the whole business of big companies buying up real estate and whether it's a good thing or not, spoiler alert, it's a totally good thing. I'm all in favor. Um, no one, no one is going to agree with me. All of that and a Slate Plus on legacy admissions to universities um, is coming up on Slate Money. Oh, and Stacy, you have an update on the T.H. Chan School of something something at Harvard? Yes. In the episode in which you made it very clear why you hate surveys and polls, Felix, um, I described the Harvard T.H. Chan School as having an affiliation with Chan Zuckerberg. It does not. Different Chan. Different Chan. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Okay, Stacey, there's this thing that I've been peripherally reading about for, I guess, a couple months now, where Apple made a big change to the ad something something, and everyone was up in arms, and Apple said, don't worry, it'll all be fine. And then Facebook said, we've got this, but then they came out and said, oh, shit, actually, we kind of lost a lot of money because of this. And now Snap, which owns Snapchat, came out with earnings and said, wait, our earnings were way lower than expected because of this, and their share price went down. And literally that is 100% of what I understand about this story. And so I need you to explain to me, number one, what is going on? And number two, should anyone does anyone need to care about this? Well, I think people who spend a bunch of money on ad campaigns, care a lot about this. So the the Apple change is the iOS change that we actually talked about in the show a couple of months back around how Apple says it's trying to protect privacy. And the big change is the, and if you have used your iPhone from like iOS 14, iOS 15, you might have seen these messages saying, hey, this app is trying to track information about you, or it wants to like use your location, or et cetera, et cetera. And all of those prompts were the 
user-facing version of, do you want this company associated with this app or do you want the advertisers and the ad tracking technology associated with this app to have a really good picture of what you're doing, how you're using this app, what, how you are moving around the internet and generally like any information they can gather about you from your phone. And surprise, surprise, and I say this sincerely because a lot of folks didn't think this would matter, more than a small number of people said, actually, I don't want to share my information with these companies. Um, and what that has meant in terms of advertising is it's now harder for people whose model is we can tell you, person trying to sell shoes or glasses or whatever direct-to-consumer thing everyone's buying, how effective your advertising with us is because we know what folks are doing on their devices after we've seen your ads. And now they don't know that with the same level of precision or granularity anymore. And the result is that the advertisers selling shoes or glasses or um, widgets, you know, sports betting accounts or whatever <laughs> it is, are then saying, well, if you can't tell me how effective my ad is, I'm not going to spend as much money on it. Right. And in addition to that, you've also had this, because um, everything comes back to supply chains in 2021, reality that advertisers are pulling back anyway because they don't want to try to sell things that folks can't get. Right. So, you know, people are facing actual inventory in the not eyeballs, but actual stuff on shelves problem. That's like we don't want to show shoes to you that if you try to order them, they'll be out of stock. Right. There's no point. You're not going to see a lot of ads for the Nissan Altima these days because Nissan is selling all of the Altimas. I just I know where that name like <laughs> popped into my head from. But Advertising. No. <laughs> yeah, they got you. <laughs> Yeah, Nissan Altima, congratulations on being the first car <laughs> brand to come into my head. <laughs> so is Apple a winner here? Are they like, is, is, is there a way in which Apple itself has like an unfair advantage now? Well, that was absolutely the criticism that folks who were not Apple <laughs> were levying at the time, right? That Apple would continue to know stuff that Apple is itself an advertiser or, you know, it facilitates advertising. There are people who buy ads on the App Store, for example. And, you know, I have seen charts floating around that shows sort of like Apple's, you know, percentage share of some of that advertising inventory has been going up as it's been declining for other folks. So the, the main chart that was going around, um, it was someone from the FT, wasn't it, who was basically saying that if you look at the searches that result in app downloads um the share of those ads like when you do a search you get search results but you also get ads and then where you can basically say look someone searched for an app download and then they clicked on an ad and then they downloaded the app that used to be dominated by google and now like half of it is apple which i don't entirely understand i guess what you're saying is that's now search within the app store that people are that that like searching in Google for an app is something that people aren't doing so much anymore or that they're not clicking on ads so much anymore because of these reasons. Well, I haven't, I have, I've actually not seen that chart. Um, but the, that kind of advertising is sort of distinct from the one that Snap is describing, right? Like for them, it's, we sold an imp a set of impressions to somebody who's trying to sell, I guess, a Nissan Altima. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we used to be able to say, hey, for sure, at least with high intent, 
X number of the, you know, of those impressions actually got to something approaching a conversion. The app, adver- the app advertising that you're describing is like, yes, exactly. Somebody goes into the app store. They're like, I want to download Nissan's app. They type in a keyword, um, Nissan. And sometimes it's competitors will bid to have an advertising search result appear at the top of those results. <laughs> so, I mean, who cares? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess marketers care because they like the precision of the advertising tools that Facebook and Snap could offer. But I mean, we lived a long time without those tools, so they won't be as precise anymore. Why does it matter, do you think? Well, it certainly matters to the people who've sold precision, right? If if you're in a situation where the feedback you're getting from marketers is, hey, we used to have a lot more accuracy or we used to have a lot more conversion or, you know, whatever the kind of the the metric is that they care about at the time, now coming to you and saying, like, we're not seeing the performance that we need to justify this ad spend, like, that's potentially, as Snap is saying, a revenue hit. And I think there's, there, there's a couple of interesting consumer behavior things going on here. Consumers in general like to preserve privacy, and they get skeeved out when it turns out that advertisers and marketers know way more about them and their habits than they thought they did there was recently an investigation in the markup showing how it's not just advertisers how like the planned parenthood website has a bunch not has like 35 different ad trackers on it and even like keystroke loggers and stuff and you're like no don't do that um and it's very natural for people when asked by ios like do you want these people to know about you the answer is no i don't want these people to know about me at the same time i'm 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 reminded of like a bunch of stories about how everyone is seeing ads and offers for sports gambling these days and i have literally never once in my life seen an ad or an offer for sports gambling because apparently these ads are so incredibly well targeted that they they know i don't they just watch avoid sports you and completely. therefore they're just they're just <laughs> going to avoid me completely and i'm fine with that to be honest i i feel like actually i mean you, you said people like to have their privacy i think people probably aren't thinking about it at all and what apple did is sort of like make the what is it, make the quiet loud or make the implicit explicit? Like, of course, if you're specifically asked, do you want this thing to track you all around? You're going to say no. But I don't know if that's true. If you kind of know that in your in the back of your head, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Like people know they shouldn't have a password that's like one, two, three, four. They do it anyway. Passwords (laughs) are still one, two, three, four. Emily, how often. So now, as a result of various other forms of legislation, you cannot go to a website without being asked 50 times. Do you want to allow all these kinds of cookies to track you? And I am that person who will go and be like, no, 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 no. And it is meaningfully a pain in the ass. It is like genuinely made my entire web surfing experience worse across mobile and web, (laughs) especially because increasingly folks are trying to like fight back by making certain types of things not possible if you opt out of this ad tracking. But I did a thing that I do, which journalists do all the time. And I like, I went and talked to some people and I was like, how often do you opt out? And they're like, oh, never. (laughs) I never even noticed this anymore. So I do think that there's something different about the iOS ecosystem to have such sort of high rates of opting out relative to what has been true for advertising on the browser-based web for a long time. 
I think it's the clarity of the opt out that Apple has written. Because if you if you get the message, it's very clearly written. It's like, do you want to be tracked? Yes, no. But it, those cookies notifications are very like when I look at them, my eyes like cross a little bit. I don't understand them as much, and I feel like that actually probably plays a a big role. It's like clicking on terms of service. No one's actually going and like digging in there and reading it and learning like you have no right to take this company into court you're, and all this, the details. Right. The language, you know? the language is so important. If it's just like, do you accept cookies? It's like, fine. Cookies, <laughs> those are good. They're tasty. Like, can I have chocolate chip, please? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> whereas, yes. Whereas it's like, do you want a robot following your every move? It's like, well, maybe not. No, no. <laughs> yeah, and I think Apple really wrote that very well and clearly and brilliantly that makes a difference so stacy are you a duck duck go user <laughs> yes <laughs> what <laughs> i mean if, if it's possible to be extra and more nerdy than is practical on the internet i am probably engaging in that behavior it's true and so the other question i have since you actually know about this stuff is um all of those pop-up banners that say do you accept cookies that we're seeing on basically every website these days is that gdpr is that european regulations or is that something else um that's a good question it started off as a function of gdpr because folks were just like it's too hard <laughs> to geoblock and say like if somebody is subject to gdpr we'll show them this or not but it's also i've seen a pr- much more of it in the aftermath of california passing various bits of privacy legislation that allow people who are domiciled in California to like opt out of things. You might see for certain types of newsletters or other signups, for example, that, hey, if you have a California address, you have the right to request all of the information that we have about you. I don't know how folks are thinking about it from like the technical underpinnings, if they're doing some kind of magic that these buckets of opt outs apply to folks who are subject to GDPR or if they've just said like, fine, we're going to be in compliance with everything and we're just going to make it kludgier for everyone. But there are, there are definitely multiple pieces of legislation around the world that is affecting this. I, I have one last question, which is, is it possible to opt out of tracking on TikTok? Like, I, <laughs> I love TikTok. I'm ridiculously <laughs> addicted to TikTok. But and I see like when I'm in I'm in New York and I see a bunch of like very downtown New York specific TikToks, which I assume is because they know where I am. But I don't recall ever sort of agreeing to let them track me. I don't know. It just it, I feel like first party cookies are still allowed, or might have I got that wrong? Um, first party cookies are in a very interesting gray area as it relates to TikTok. There was a lot of reporting, I think in 2019 or 2020, about the ways in which TikTok, especially depending on how you've registered, will like triangulate you by your phone number, which they would have gotten from, you know, like your registration details. They will look at what they know about you from email addresses. So they're not even always looking at what's on your phone to figure out what's going on. They're like pinging your number across, you know, like T-Mobile, cellular towers, et cetera. There, I mean, the whole premise of TikTok is you don't even have to watch a video for them to know whether you like it or you don't like it. And so they are absolutely on the bleeding edge of figuring out how to give people stuff they think they're going to like. I feel like every time we have a conversation about privacy, I come across as like someone who doesn't care about privacy. So maybe that's just, that's just who I am. (laughs) We have an anti-privacy campaigner on the pod. (laughs) (laughs) But like all this stuff is free and 
do people think there's no price to be paid? I, I don't like at, at some level, like, I mean, I, I could talk to you for an hour about how much I love Google Maps and how it's changed my life for the better in multitude of ways. And I know that the trade-off with Google Maps is zero privacy. They know everywhere I go, every time I stop for gas. You all can my turn secrets. off your Google Maps history, by the way. <laughs> but I, I won't. I love Google Maps. It's totally free. Like what a miracle of technology. Like but, I'm but, but Emily, and then Felix loves I, TikTok. Like wh- I, I think okay. the answer is that for decades like this is this is one of the things that has always like lives in the back of my head is that everyone who's um hand-wringing about the how addictive the internet is or tiktok is or anything like that never seems to care about how addictive good old-fashioned broadcast television used to be and people used to watch like eight hours a day of broadcast tv that was a stat that never made sense (laughs) and the um and the sort of baseline decades old, we're all used to it, we're swimming in this water that we never even notice it, state of the world, is a state of the world where things like broadcast TV and daily newspaper, you know, free sheets or whatever, make sense that they're free and they're ad supported, but there's no privacy violation, right? If you if you see an ad on the TV, that you're not giving up any information there. And so that idea that every time that you're being marketed to, there, there's like a personal cost to you in terms of information that you're giving up about yourself is, I think, new and does make people uncomfortable. Although obviously it doesn't make you uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, maybe I just don't think about it deeply enough, but yeah, it does, I would rather not be lost in the car, you know, than... than then retain my sure, privacy. But like but and also the other <laughs> thing about privacy is that it makes people uncomfortable kind of only when it's visible. The thing that people always reacted the worst against was that one weird shoe ad that followed them around the internet and then they saw like a billion times and like I've already bought these shoes. Stop showing me the ad for them and you just keep on seeing the ad for weeks. Like so long as the targeting isn't quite that obvious, I think people are more okay with it but when it comes like annoyingly obvious then people get really skeeved out right there's that famous story uh it was a new york times story about target where target knew that a woman was pregnant before she had told anyone because of what she had been buying and they actually uh, sent a specific like circular to the house and somehow that outed her stuff like that when it's clumsy i guess yes i object i object to clumsy marketing (laughs) <laughs> so it's like as long as the robots that are trying to kill you are really, really cool. <laughs> um, so here's here's the other thing that I would say about the the privacy thing. I would also say the intimacy of the data that folks are being asked to give up is very different from what it was before. We want to know exactly where you are at all times so that when you walk into a Sephora, we can target advertising to you based on your location, your Sephora browsing history and say, this mascara that you looked at a week ago is 25% off, right? And so you've got the just the invasiveness of the kinds of requests that were previously invisible to folks that they're now me, as Felix said, they're now loud as opposed to quiet. Um, maybe those you. Um, and then I think the second thing is the the protection of this information has been very inconsistent. You know, I got a notification from an identity fraud tracking service that I used just the last week saying, hey, um, as a result of Minted.com, which sells stationery, getting hacked or whatever a couple of years ago, 
two of my previous home addresses and my phone number are now, you know, sort of like tied together with my email and my identity and easily found on the internet. And that's like really frustrating that, you know, that is data I explicitly gave up because I'm like, yes, please ship me new stationery because I love letters. But, you know, when I think about how much additional metadata about me is collected by people I have even less visibility into, where I'm like, they know where I'm standing right now. They know every single thing that I've been looking at previously. And I think about the the risks and potential harms of having an extremely, well, I'm a journalist, so it's going to be misleading because I look for weird stuff on the internet, but a picture of what I'm up to at all times, you know, potentially leaked to the world is quite scary. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Let's talk about my favorite subject, which is home ownership and how it is a terrible thing and no one should own their what? own home. Felix, do you own your own home? I, I, do as I say, <laughs> not as I do, Stacey. Okay, cool. Just just putting that out there. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the US has a pretty high home ownership rate and it is a kind of general truism in American politics that um, it is still too low and it is always too low and we should always want more people to buy their own homes. Um, and I'm like the one outlier here saying, no, it's actually too high and it want, it should be lower. And the, for most people, it is both physical and a financial tie that is it dominates your life in terms of you can't move anywhere if you want to get a better job or you can't spend money on other things because you've got to pay your mortgage you can't choose to you know move somewhere with lower rent very easily that kind of thing and the flexibility that comes with renting is massively undervalued and that if more people rented with decent protections for renters to allow them to stay in their homes um if they want to, um, we would be in a much better place. And the way you fix this problem is by like large permanent pools of capital, like BlackRock, buying up huge amounts of housing, especially housing in 
neighborhoods that are historically unoccupied and then renting them out and you know for like long-term yield generation you know asset diversification reasons and then you get a bunch of renters in so-called good neighborhoods and sending their kids to good schools and like the world becomes a much better place and the way that you get blackrock to buy up all of these houses is they buy them in bulk from like iBuyers, from Zillow, basically. People who want to sell their house easily just press a button on Zillow and Zillow is like, we will pay you tomorrow. And they're like, that's so much easier than listing my house and showing it. So they sell it to Zillow and then Zillow sells like a thousand houses at a time to BlackRock and everyone wins. Um, so that's my that's my like utopian vision of the future where we all rent from BlackRock. And I expect... Zero listeners to agree with me on this one. And probably neither of you do either. Well, I mean, we should say we're talking about this this week because Zillow stopped iBuying. It stopped buying up individual paused. homes. Um, it paused. It paused the process <laughs> because the company got in a little over its skis. And um, its reason was, you know, supply chain, blah, blah, blah. But um, there's some convincing analysis out there that Zillow in the end was kind of overpaying people for their homes. And this isn't the kind of business where you can make those kinds of, you can't overpay. The margins are low when you're buying up used single family homes. Used homes. trying to resell them. Used (laughs) homes. Existing homes, whatever. (laughs) Pre-owned. It is. It's like a used car. It's a used home. It's the same thing. Um, so there are still these other iBuyers out there who make it really easy. And you can see the appeal. It's such a pain. If you have a house, to sell a house is a total pain. You have to get this weird, strange real estate broker lady has to come over and tell you all the things that are wrong with your house and how you have to fix them, paint this, fix that. It's a whole process. You just want to get rid of this thing, this used home you're living in. And pay 6% for the privilege. And pay 6% for the privilege. Yeah, they're like, well, you'll get more money if you spend a bunch of money. And you're like, does that even make, what is the math that's happening here? So, I mean, there is this, I think, a real market need for iBuyers, actually. Um, but yeah, I know I know a lot of people don't agree that Zillow should be buying houses and selling houses for some reason. It's bad because real estate brokers lose out. Stacy. <laughs> I, I mean, I, just, I just find this whole story so confusing. <laughs> um, one, because, you know, shout out to the homeowners who got Zillow to overpay. Congratulations on once again <laughs> making out like bandits in a housing market that is like biased against a lot of other people. But please tell me that somehow they wound up getting soft bank money. That's all <laughs> I want to hear. And then, it, and then it all becomes perfect. You know, I have not looked at who, whether SoftBank has participated in any Zillow rounds, but I shall do that. But I think for me, the thing that is also heroically confusing about this is you step all the way back. And part of the problem is there just aren't enough houses for people in the places that they want to live at prices that they can afford to pay in them. And I don't see how... The Zillow thing is going to solve that if they're buying up single family homes and then reselling single family homes, unless they're suddenly like going to convince NIMBY-esque zoning folks to like actually allow higher density housing in these places that Felix described as having good schools. There's no way that this solves um, this solves for like the broad um, underinvestment in housing and 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 too low density. Like 
That's that's for sure. I buying all of this Blackstone buying up houses, it amounts to maybe one to four percent of of the single family home transactions in the country. I mean, it gets, I think, a little bit outsized attention because it sounds despite Felix's cheerleading, most people are like, I don't want private equity companies buying up the American dream. But it's just this very, very tiny fraction of the market and only in specific markets like Phoenix and and other places. Isn't Blackstone the biggest private landlord in New York, or at least in Manhattan? I think that's mostly commercial. Not single family, yeah. Yeah, well, there is no single family housing in Manhattan. But yeah, the, <laughs> well, I think Gracie Mansion, and that's about it. What we're talking about in terms of the bigger picture, what you're talking about, Stacey, of, of like housing being unaffordable and there's not you know enough new housing being built is totally true. The price mechanism is one of my favorite things in economics. It's called the winner's curse. The way the winner's curse works is it's an auction thing. Now, houses, when you sell a house, what you are doing is basically auctioning it. Um, you you put it up for sale, and especially these days when you can get like five offers within a week um, or a day, um, you basically just end up selling to the highest bidder. There's a series of bids, and then whoever puts in the highest bid wins the house. So it's, an, it's, it's a good old-fashioned English-style auction. And... The way that English-style auctions work is everyone always overpays to a first approximation because what you have is you have a whole bunch of different people all judging how much they can afford and how much the the house is worth to them, and they don't know for sure, so they all make mistakes. And some of them make a mistake on the downside and wind up you know, bidding less than the house would actually be work, worth for them. And then some end up overbidding. And, and actually bidding too much compared to how much it's, it's worth to them. And by the nature of auctions, the people who overbid inevitably wind up winning the auction. So everyone always ends up paying too much for housing and the housing becomes too expensive. And you get all of these people saying like, you know, house, house prices have become unaffordable. And it's all true. But that has absolutely nothing to do with Zillow or anyone else. But, but I will say to your point, Emily, about like Zillow overpaying, like, if Zillow is in the market winning auctions, then by definition, they're overpaying. If they're like, if they're, if people are putting their, their houses up for sale and Zillow is coming in and saying, like, you've listed your house at $300,000 and I will offer $320,000 and they win that, then they almost by definition will have overpaid. But the idea behind the Zillow iBuying is that they do they do not participate in those auctions and that instead of putting it up for auction, you just take the flat rate fixed offer from Zillow. And in that situation, it is possible for them to just say, we will offer you $295,000, take it or leave it. And then if you want three hundred twenty five, dollars you're going to have to put it up for auction and go through all of the, you know, real estate agent crap. Yeah, I mean, I, it's interesting uh, looking at a, a chart of how the median purchase price that Zillow paid in like Phoenix in, in 2021 compared to the other iBuyers. And Zillow's line is like straight up and to the right while the other iBuyers are more leveled off. So it does seem like it was doing something wonky and, and weird in comparison to these other these other players, you know, paying a little bit a little bit too much. Like I said, getting in over your skis. And what we what we don't know, of course, is like who they're selling to. There are three things you can do if you're Zillow. One is you can have like a basic 
agreement with BlackRock that all of the houses you buy, they will pay you, you know, cost plus two percent or something. You just like flip them to BlackRock and make it up and make lots of money on at small margins with high volume. And then, you know, at that point, the algorithm you use to determine how much you're willing to pay is just whatever BlackRock tells you to use. Right. It's a single it's a monopsony. The other thing is like Zillow goes, we have huge amounts of data on how much houses are selling for, what people are looking at, um, where the demand is going to be. And so we're going to use our proprietary data to work out which, uh, which are the hot neighborhoods. And we can slightly overpay a little bit in the hot neighborhoods because we can make it up with data and then hold on to those houses for maybe, you know, a few weeks or whatever, and then say, ha, it's hot. And then we can sell them at a profit and we can become house traders basically you know we can we can be buying and selling houses and making money on like by selling them for more than we bought them for and i i suspect that that's what zillow was doing that the other eye buyers were just saying like you know open door or whatever were just saying we're just going to sell it all to blackrock and sell for whatever blackrock wants to pay and zillow was like because we have a gazillion petabytes of data on what kind of houses people are interested in we can get alpha from that we can make extra money by like seeing where the market is going and that's probably where they got unstuck i think also there's a limit and and i'm not the only person making this point there is houses single family houses are very specific collections of data and there is a lot of variation from one house to the next so like even if you're zillow and you have all this information about home prices etc at the nitty-gritty house by house level there are so many variations and inputs that they still don't have the data advantage that they think they have you know like like the guy next to me has been trying to sell his house for the past three months and you'd think it's a hot market and and every all the data points where I live would 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 have suggested he would have sold it by now, but he's not sold it by now. And I have a lot of theories as to why I did take a look around. He doesn't listen, is, is, so it's is fine. it something to do with wall to wall carpeting? I mean, I think I think there needs to be some updating that goes on. Like you have to anyway. The point is, is that open like plan still big? It's, it's not like it's not like used cars, actually, even though I call them used houses. Existing homes are super specific and like very like pricing them is difficult and you can't just do it in aggregate, I don't think, with big data sometimes. I have a special announcement for you today. This year is the 25th anniversary of Slate. I remember when I started reading Slate 25 years ago when it was a weekly magazine edited by Michael Kinsley that was published by Microsoft and you could print it out in Microsoft Word with page numbers at the bottom every week. It has come a long way for their it has come a long way from there. And to celebrate all of its various iterations and what it has become, we are offering the annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. Now, remember, you'll get all of our Slate Plus segments, which are amazing. You'll get no ads on any of the podcasts, and you get unlimited access to Slate.com. Believe it or not, Slate podcasts have been going for a large chunk of those 25 years. Slate money has been going for... Well, I've had, let's just put it this way, I've had three different jobs since Slate Money started. So sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash money plus. 
to keep us going for another 25 years. Again, that's $25 off an annual membership through October 31. So between now and the end of the month, sign up at slate.com slash money plus. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. All right. I, I'm not sure whether we've talked. I think actually a while back when we had Mitu Gulati and Libu Kite on the show, we mentioned Tuna Bonds. But for those of you who either didn't listen to that show or have forgotten it, or maybe I've forgotten that we didn't talk about Tuna Bonds, um, the most notorious sovereign debt deal of in living memory was a bond issue by the country of Mozambique. And this was Mozambique's first ever bond issue, you know, international bond issue. This was their debut in the euro markets, as um, those of us who used to work for Euro Money magazine would like to say. And so this was like Mozambique's coming out to the world. And it turns out to have been just covered in lies and fraud and bribery and theft and all the rest of it. Um the long story short is that the that a state-owned enterprise decided to borrow a bunch of money to buy tuna fishing boats because um, the idea was that you would build up a tuna fishing fleet and then the fleet would go out and fish for tuna and the tuna would be expensive and they would make money and that would be a profitable enterprise which would redound to the benefit of the population of Mozambique. Um they issue these bonds and then immediately gets stolen, basically, by various Mozambican government officials. There's some vague walk-on part by Abu Dhabi for reasons that I don't entirely understand. And, of course, there are even bribes to the 
book runners of the deal, which was Credit Suisse, there, there was this guy called Andrew Peirce who basically run the, ran the deal called for, for Credit Suisse, and he wound up getting bribed a mere $45 million to get this deal done. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of crappy theft and whatnot all around. The bonds rapidly, it rapidly became obvious that these um, tuna fishing bonds were never going to get repaid because there weren't even any boats. They never went out, even even bought the boats. They just stole the money instead of buying boats. When this became obvious, the finance minister of Mozambique at the time, who, you know, seems to have been reasonably corrupt himself, decided that what he was going to do was in was instead of just let these bonds default, he was going to swap them all into sovereign bonds. Like, And this was what the big Mozambique sovereign bond was, is big coming out into international markets was basically um, a way to allow all of the people who bought bonds that were backed by tuna fishing boats that didn't exist to instead have Mozambique sovereign debt. And so the country wound up going billions of dollars into debt in order to effectively bail out a bunch of investors in crappy tuna-backed bonds. And the whole thing was a disaster. Um, it, there have been criminal prosecutions. There have been criminal convictions. There is an extradition attempt from Mozambique for Andrew Peirce. This story is going to run and run. A uh, Russian bank called VTB was involved. And whenever Russian banks get involved, you know no good can come of this. But the biggest bank involved in all of this was Credit Suisse, who was the book runner on the deal. And it just agreed, this is the news hook, to pay $475 million in fines to the UK Financial Conduct Authority and the US Department of Justice and SEC and also to forgive $200 million of Mozambican debt that it was holding on its books. That's my that's my attempt to sum up the tuna bond story. So wait, what? So, <laughs> so five perfect, minutes later, Emily asks. <laughs> wait, what? So there was a bunch of bonds backed by tuna fishing boats that were that bogus. That didn't exist. Yes. And then the gov- instead of just like letting that that loss just wash over what happened was Mozambique then took on the debt of the tuna fishing bonds itself and Yeah, it-, it may or may not have had some kind of a government guarantee that may or may not have been enforceable, but instead of like making these bonds government guaranteed bonds, it actually just swapped them into government debt. And the thing it really reminds me of is when the government of Ireland bailed out all of the Irish banks in 2008 and took on, you know, tens of billions of euros of debt, you know, instead of just allowing the banks to, you know, have debt issues. They were like, no, we will make this a sovereign debt problem. And and Ireland became like this massively indebted sovereign when it had, up until that point, um, been incredibly, like, fiscally robust. responsible, yeah. Okay, so, okay, so that seems okay, uh, an okay thing to do. Other countries have done it. So then what well, It was a very bad idea for the country of <laughs> Ireland, and it was an equally bad idea for the country of Mozambique. If you have companies in your country that have borrowed money with like credit spreads and credit risk, and then they go bust, the way that capitalism works is that the lenders to those companies wind up taking losses. It's not that the country bails them out. But, okay... You're going to make me feel dumb again. But don't countries bail out lenders all the time? Like, didn't didn't the U.S. do that, like, a whole big lot back in the day? 
too big to fail? Am I missing something? We we've done it. You're I mean, not missing we anything. We did it a little bit with 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 City City Bank in Mexico. It has been done. Creditors tend to be very powerful, and they tend to have, you know, very good relations with people in government, and they tend to go up to government and say, "You can't let this company go bust because," and then they, you know, some parade of terribles and then the government goes oh we don't want that parade of terribles so we'd better bail out quote unquote the company which inevitably means the company's creditors so is it is it true that other com- countries have bailed out creditors of that country's companies and debtors yes it has definitely happened in the past now happened in ireland it happened in mozambique it has happened in the united states but the difference, I think, in this case is that Mozambique, Mozambique really didn't have the money to do that. And the impoverishment of an extremely poor population in Mozambique was entirely unnecessary. This was the thing that triggered the currency crisis in, what was that, 17 or 18? Yes. And this, yeah, this, this, um, this deal was, I think, 2013, 2012, 2013, around then. Like, as, yeah, this has been going on for a decade. And there has been, like, Mozambique has now got, like, a junk credit rating it's it's not in a good place and how does the u.s department of justice become involved Ooh, i love this question <laughs> oh no <laughs> Why? i wish y'all could have seen felix's face it just like radiated <laughs> glee at this question from emily <laughs> no it's a really good question and it's and and it's it's easy to see how the uk financial conduct authority gets involved because the bonds were issued under london law in London, and that it was a fraudulent bond issue, and the UK FCA is like, don't do that. The, how does how is this a problem for the SEC and the especially the DOJ? Like, I feel like that honestly is a little bit of a stretch. Um, and but you know, this is all part of the way the the US exerts power globally, and because it has this kind of hegemonic status as the primary primary regulator of every global bank. And if a global bank does something bad anywhere in the world, the DOJ is going to want a piece of that. So the repercussions of the tuna situation fall upon poor people in Mozambique and Credit Suisse. Those are the losers here. Yeah? So if you, if you read Matt Levine on this... One should always read Matt Levine on everything. I think Matt Levine is far too sympathetic to Credit Suisse. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, he, he mildly, like he he hints at the idea that Credit Suisse is actually a victim here rather than a perpetrator. That you know, there's a bunch of Credit Suisse bankers who are doing crimes and basically stealing from Credit Suisse, and that Credit Suisse is being punished for the crime of being stolen from. And is that really fair? And the answer is, well, yes, it is really fair. Because if you are a bank with halfway decent compliance, then you basically make sure that you don't get stolen from. And it was your job to not get stolen from. And if you had done that job correctly, then you wouldn't have had all of those impoverished Mozambicans. And so it's it's a, probably a good idea to find Credit Suisse in this situation. I mean, I feel like Credit Suisse has had quite a run of challenging compliance questions <laughs> recently. <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> Just, so this does seem to me more than, I mean, there have been too many one-offs for now for it to be like one-offs anymore. We're, we're past the point of three makes a trend. 
Emily, on, on a scale from one to ten, like how much do you feel like you now understand Mozambican tuna bonds? Mm, with ten being perfect understanding, ten being like a Felix <laughs> level fifteen no minute explainer. Understanding. <laughs> I'm at ugh, just being honest. I think I'm at like a four and a half to five. I feel like I went from a four to a seven. We we brought you up from like one, so we're you know we're getting somewhere. Let's have a numbers round. Why not? Um, Stacey, I'm going to begin with you because you are very keen that I not steal your This number. is correct because I, f- I feel like we might have the same number. My number is 1,300%. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. And that is how much shares of Digital World Acquisition Acquisition. Damn it, that Corp. was my number. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, have gone up this week <laughs> because this is the spec that's, you know, supposedly going to merge with Trump media and technology in the name of truth and etc. And I have just been like watching real-time data of this thing. Uh, you know, we're recording on Friday, so like on Friday morning and just losing my mind at both the volume and the intensity of the moves in this back today and this week. So we are recording on, uh, it is right now 11.24 a.m. on Friday morning, and I'm looking at Yahoo Quotes, and it's saying the day's range for Digital World Acquisition Corp is 69.72 to 175. That's the range that it's, that's the range that it's traded in within less than two hours on Friday morning. Um, and I'll hesitate. I'll, I'll, I'll hurry to add that the sixty-nine seventy-two, the bottom end of the range, is where it's trading right now. It's gone down a lot from its highs. But to be clear, yes, this is a spec, which means that the value of its assets is exactly ten dollars. If it's trading at seventy dollars, that's crazy. If it's trading at one hundred and seventy-five dollars, that's crazier. But everything is crazy in a world of. If you if you take two crazy things, which is specs and meme stocks, and then you multiply them both by the power of Trump, weird things are going to happen. Yeah, I mean the the chart is amazing. It just like goes up, like it's wild, <laughs> and then goes down. Indeed. Well, I'm I'm looking on a longer range than intraday, but <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Emily, I was just going to say. I mean, just to emphasize <laughs> the bingo card aspect of all this, Trump and SPAC together. Could it be more clear? We know Trump is the biggest scammer of all time who scammed his way into the White House, and he is now behind a SPAC. It's like, it's too perfect. Like, you don't, I'm speechless. I can't believe this is happening. (laughs) It's a great way for him to become like a paper billionaire because he puts no money in, and then they give him a bunch of shares in this company, which is based on complete thin air and the deck is wonderful it's like we will compete with stripe and amazon web services and you're like yeah of course you will (laughs) it's like we're watching succession it it really it it has echoes of of this fictional hbo story as well just this completely tune in on monday for a recap of episode two trump thinks he can take on amazon and and facebook with truth social it's absurd. Yeah, you, you don't post tweets, you post truths. And then you can retruth <laughs> someone else's truths. I'm not even making this up. But it's all lies. Well, the thing about <laughs> attempting to compete with AWS and payments is this has very much been uh, a kind of a cornerstone of the argument of like the techno right wing, 
where their concern is that tech is too lefty, by which they mean whenever we host, you know, white supremacist Nazi content, we get like kicked off and banned. And there are and have been for a while very real attempts to rebuild an infrastructure um like an infrastructure for the internet, for web, for digital, for payments that does want to compete with those folks. Like whether it is possible to go from zero to MasterCard, hmm. But the 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 spirit and the intent is very real. Hmm. Yeah, and and it's it's absolutely obvious that as you know, my colleague Mike Allen has been reporting. Um, Trump is running for president. He will be the Republican nominee unless he's in jail or dead, basically. Um, and he is hyper aware of the incredible tailwind that he got from Twitter um, the last time he ran for president. Well, I, you know, both times he ran for president, I guess. And he's not going to have that tailwind this time. And so he's thinking that like maybe if he doesn't have treat- tweets, he can have truths and they will serve the same purpose as the tweets. That's clearly the, you know, the non-financial reason for him to do this. Since I stole Emily's number, Emily, what's your new number? <laughs> wow. Okay. My new number. I had a backup number, thank Ooh, God. I you suppose. are so prepared. I respect that. <laughs> mm. My new number is 15 million. That is the number of doses of vaccine that the federal government is prepping to ship to pediatricians and other smaller sites once the Pfizer vaccine is approved for five to 11 year old people, which is the most exciting thing that is going to happen in the next few weeks. God willing, let us all pray. We want the 5 to 11-year-olds to be vaccinated before the holidays. I feel like not enough people are worried about this, um, but they should be. And it would be very exciting if all these kids could could get vaccinated. Um, And there's a a nice piece in the Times about um, how the Biden administration is thinking about vaccination for this cohort because they don't want a bunch of little kids like standing in line at mass vaccination sites. That would be kind of a disaster, right? The propensity for children to not want to stand in line for a long time or like cry and stuff like that. So it's a whole different kind of plan for them. I feel like there's been that same propensity in adults (laughs) who have been trying to get to stand in line. So, you know, I I don't want to like shade the children, (laughs) given what we've seen from the grownups. I I can tell you when I when I received my my first jab, I was on the verge of tears at Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx. It was not the most efficient system. My my number is 70 cents, which is the value of a physical menu per average check, according to BJ's restaurant. They moving back from QR codes to physical menus and all of this wonderful techno-utopian idea that QR codes would make things much easier and seamless and um, and more profitable and, and wonderful for restaurants. Like, everyone hates them. And, they dis- and they've dis- BJ's Restaurant has, dis- has discovered, using their sort of back-of-an-envelope calculations and empirical data, that if you give people physical menus versus asking them to order from QR codes, the average check goes up by 70 cents. Well, I think with BJ's, I don't know if you all have been in one of those recently, but at a place that I once worked in California, it was like literally the only food <laughs> in in a reasonable distance. And so we were there a lot of the time. Those menus are gigantic. They're one of those like your 15 pages of flipping past 
whatever exorbitant amounts of pasta you could you could possibly imagine. So I would see for them how giving people that idea of, oh, but did you want the extra extra <laughs> um, could work in their favor. But I would love to see this for places where, you know, their menus were like three things they wrote in chalk on a twee little board um, in the spirit of kitsch or whatever and how it's how it's shaping up for them. The thing I really like QR codes for is not ordering, but paying. The thing which makes me happier than anything else is if I go to, you know, my favorite soup dumpling place in New York and the check comes with a QR code on it and all you need to do is scan a QR code and like Apple Pay comes up and you go click, click and you've paid the check and you can leave. I am so happy with that. That makes me so incredibly happy. But yeah, I, I've never enjoyed trying to scroll through uh menu on my phone especially especially when it's a small restaurant and all they're doing is they're like here's a crappily scanned pdf, PDF. of a piece yeah. of paper and you have to and you can't see with on the 50 phone ad trackers associated with it and please give us your email <laughs> um the payments thing is so interesting because i remember when i moved to the u.s being really confused that you would like pay in a restaurant and they would take your card away <laughs> and like go somewhere else and then swipe it and i was like what is happening right now and so it, it is a terrible system we need to get away it's from it's so confusing is it so you do you spend less money because like the whole thing with ordering in restaurants and money is like you don't think about how much anything costs and then the bill comes and you're like, oh, shit. You know, like you just ordering <laughs> like it doesn't matter. What? Yeah. But is it more explicit or more – does it hit you harder in the QR code world? No, I think, I think, it's, I think you just get exhausted trying to scroll through – the options and so you just go yeah i can't be i also think that ordering in a lot of these places has is a a fundamentally social experience in a way that as soon as you know the four people around the table go into their phones and like half of them immediately switch to twitter (laughs) is is not the same i am in the half oh and you can't upsell the way the server can't upsell. I remember when I was a waitress there, I was like, make sure you ask about appetizers. You want any apps? Do, would you like the nachos? You can't. And then you're, and then they're like, happening. wait, let me pull out my phone again and try and work out where the appetizers <laughs> yeah. are. It, it, it doesn't work. Yeah. No, breaks breaks apart. All right. I think that's it for us this week. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Um, we will be back this coming Monday with the one and only Kurt Anderson talking about succession Season 3, Episode 2. If you are not a succession person, then we'll be back next Saturday with another amazing sleep money. But yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for ranking this show on the App Store. And especially thanks to Shayna Roth for producing this here show in the face of incredible last-minute changes. Um, in any case, we'll be back next week with even more sleep money. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.